For the past few weeks, we've been reading and studying, and uh, the pastors uh, have been talking uh, with you about the book of James. Some of the features that James, in writing to the this dispersed community of people, these these faithful folks who are out in the Mediterranean world and who have literally left, if not the safety, at least the companionship of their friends in and near Jerusalem and in Galilee. James writes to them and has talked to them about several important features of their life together in these remote places, including, first of all, he said, maintain your own perseverance. In the second place, be aware that you will face trials and temptation, but no, those do not, do not, and are not placed on you by God. In the third place, he talked about the perils of favoritism and how destructive and damaging that can be in the life of the community. Last week, the reading was James's discussion, rather animated in the Bible, about the, the contrast between faith and works, deeds and belief. Today, as we move into the third chapter of James, you if you've not read this, and if you're involved with uh, some of the small groups in Living Wisely studies, you know that the third chapter begins with uh, very almost harsh arguments that he makes about what appears to be the danger and the destructive power of the tongue. He says little in this section about the capacity of our speech, of our language, of our words to be uplifting. He knows that. He mentions it. But he's very, very forceful in his argument about the destructive power, the dangers, as he says, of speech, of language, and of words. In the Bible, one of the most frequent images for words and language and speech is that of an arrow. It's not a hammer. Words is not a hammer with which one is bludgeoned. The biblical illustration and image for words is an arrow. Small. It can be launched from a distance. If it lands on target, it can be, if not fatal, at least, at least deeply and profoundly damaging. That's the image that I'm sure James had in mind when he wrote what he wrote in this section of, uh, of his letter to these, these faithful people. He talks quite a bit in this opening, this uh, section of chapter 3, about the danger of gossiping. I'd like, however, to ask you this morning, and I'll assume that most of us understand that. Most of us remember the words that we learned in grade school. And I remember them from my playground experience. When I first complained about the fact that another first grader called me a sissy. And I went to my teacher and I said, I remember his name. I'm not going to say it, but I remember his name. Actually, his name was Tommy. <laughs> it's this residual hostility that's left over. Tommy called me a sissy. 
my first grade teacher said, you know what she said to me? Sticks and stones can break your bones, but words can never hurt you. And I believed it. It was only either my first year of college or my senior year of high school when I remembered and I discovered my first grade teacher with whom I was actually still in contact because we shared a birthday, we'd been in touch for many, many years, was in denial. She told me that, and I found out 15 years later, 18 years later, it wasn't true. And I think it might have had something to do with my first girlfriend who said, I really don't want to go out with you anymore. Now that was damaging. And I couldn't believe that sticks and stones wouldn't hurt me because words did. I am confident that whether it's I or it's one of you or it's somebody whose name you know in a moment that you remember that everyone here has had, even in their adult years, in fact more likely in their adult years, a playground experience in which the words have come to you They've been deeply hurtful, and you still live and remember how it felt. I sent an email to a friend who was running for political office uh, about, I think I sent it about the early part of October. He's a person, not a dear friend, not a close friend, but somebody whom we've met several times and have, have, uh, have uh, had connections with was running for political office, and he's a very gracious, gracious person. And I began to get the political ads, the, the little, those postcards that came to our home. And I saw some of the images and some of the language on television. And I could not put together what I was reading and what I was seeing with the person whom I knew. And we were involved. We had the yard signs. The, the, the result of all of this was that I, I sent an email and I said, I just, I can't do it anymore. I, I need you to take my name off of the volunteer list. I need to ask you, uh, I need to tell you that I really have to rethink my place and my position with respect to what I told you some months ago, that I would be helpful in your campaign. I didn't get a response back, and I really didn't expect to. But here's what was troubling. I could not put together the words and the language that I heard and that I read on the postcards with the person whom I knew. And I knew there was a, a big gap and a big chasm. I'm sure that any of us who has survived and if any of you here has run for political office or is in political office, I want to acknowledge, first of all, my gratitude for your willingness to be in a place of language and of words, because that is what you deal with and live with every day. In a, an arena of language and communication that I simply do not understand, to know that words and language and speech for those of you who are in any level of public life can become almost lethal as far as one's future is concerned and we all know stories about that. 
Perhaps it's no surprise then that James set aside that topic for special consideration for the people of faith who out there in that incredibly difficult world were faced with this task. How do we deal with words and with language? And how do we protect ourselves from ending up in a place of using words and language that will, in the first place, not reflect our relationship to God and to the risen Jesus, and in the second place, words and language that will not make us any more distinctive from everybody else. With that in mind, I hope you, I can, and I hope you could understand how and why he is so intentional and so purposeful about addressing this group of Christians about the power of words and the power of language. His name is Chadwick Sapinter. That's his picture. He was the featured writer of an article that's in a national publication which arrived at our house on Friday. The title of this article was The Power of Words. I'd like to read you some of what that article is. I'll tell you a little bit about him and about his article. This is how he began his article. Words are so powerful that the two-letter word no can stop and start nations from going to war. Words are so powerful that the N-word stirs up memories and emotions of pain, of rage, and embarrassment. And he writes about the destructive power of an F-word in his own life. And this is how his story goes. I was 17 years old and entering the last semester of what was supposed to be my last, uh, my senior year of high school. I walked into my high school guidance counselor's office and she immediately greeted me with open arms, a big smile, and what I assumed was the willingness to give me guidance. Boy, was I wrong. This is how the conversation went. Hi, Chad, it's good to see you. How can I help you? I explained that I was getting offers to go to college on an athletics uh, scholarship and I wanted to know what I needed to do to graduate on time. This was a small town in Texas, and in that small town, football is as important as oxygen to some people. And so she was excited to learn and to help me with whatever I needed. She said, uh, give me some time to look at your file, and she was certain that she could help me. She began going through the file, but I noticed her demeanor change. She took off her glasses. She began to look at the file, and she looked back at me. What was initially a look of joy was turning into one of sorrow, of doubt, and disgust. Several minutes went by. The silence was eating through me. Uncertain as to what she was reading that was causing this shift, I sat patiently and I awaited her guidance. She was a guidance counselor. After what seemed like an eternity, she finally, pulling off her glasses again, turned to me. And she said this. What came out of her mouth was totally unexpected. 
she dropped the F-bomb on me. My high school guidance counselor looked at me and said these words, You are a foster kid. You are a foster kid. Yes, ma'am, I replied, and I'm now ashamed. Well, you should just drop what you're doing right now. It is not realistic for you ever to do anything like that. I was confused, embarrassed, and angry. How could one F word change so much? How could that one word guarantee that I no longer had the potential? I no longer should dream, and worst of all, that life was now worthless. He continues, here's what I've learned. The one word that we all deserve is the L word, the love word, the gift that we're all worthy of, and we're all required to give. Words matter. What you say matters, and what you don't say matters. Choose your words carefully and use them wisely. Chad Sapender had entered foster care at age 15. For those of you who work in child development or are parents, know clearly what has happened from birth to age 15 is monumental in terms of attitudes, behavior, and values. He entered foster care at age 15. He graduated eventually from Texas State University. He's 29 years old now, and he is the head of his own publishing company, and he's the author of several books. But the first book that he wrote bears this title, The Little Book of Words Every Foster Kid Should Know. And he includes there the vocabulary of words that are used that he heard in foster care, some of which he wishes he hadn't, but words that he knows will shape the lives of anybody who reads the book. The fact is, words can hurt us. There's a picture coming up of what that can mean. And so we've, we know better than the fact that sticks and stones can break my bones, and we know that words can hurt us and are damaging. But then there's the good words, the ones that James wants us to know about. The pastor who had been called to begin a new ministry in a congregation preached his first sermon, and he was a hit. Everything went well. Everybody said, Great job, Pastor. Second Sunday, they come back expecting great things, great sermon again. And he preaches again, but it's the same sermon. And so they wonder, well, still trying it out. Everybody comes back for the third week expecting a great sermon, and he preaches, guess what? Same sermon. Okay, now the Board of Elders wants to talk with him, so they meet with him. They said, Pastor, why you preach the same sermon one, two, third time in a row? And this was his answer. You probably could guess it. I'll keep preaching until you get it right. And he did. 
If you've ever had the privilege of worshiping in an African-American congregation, which can be a highly interactive experience, and to be in such a place with such a group of folks is, uh, for the, the couple times that I've done that, is slightly unsettling because everybody's engaged in the process of the sermon. And so there's amen, and there's yes, and there's music, and there's sounds, and there's reaction. But the first time we ever worshipped in an African-American congregation, these are the words that I heard. And I had never heard it, and I've not heard it among outside of an African-American congregation since. And these are the words. In the course of the sermon, there was enthusiasm, and somebody stood up in the back and said, Say it again. And the pastor says it again. And somebody else, a little further into the sermon, stands up back over. Say it again. And he says it again. Because it was worthy of hearing over and over and over. The power of words and the power of language. Here's what Jeremiah said. And if you remember that conversation that happened between God and Jeremiah, Jeremiah was commissioned by God. And God said to him, Jeremiah, I want you to go and I want you to bear this incredible responsibility. And it's this. I want you, Jeremiah, to carry my word to the people who are not going to hear it well. And do you remember what Jeremiah... I'll tell you what he said. You can read this in Jeremiah chapter 1. Alas, sovereign Lord, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord said to me, to Jeremiah, Do not say I'm too young. You must go to everyone I send you and to say whatever, say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and I will rescue you. Dangerous words. You're going to be in trouble, but I'll rescue you. But the Lord said to me, the Lord reached out his hand, touched my mouth, and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. I have put my words in your mouth. I don't believe that God operates terribly differently with Jeremiah than God operates with you and me. I think that we could be the Jeremiah's who would say, Alas, Sovereign Lord, I don't know how to speak. I am too young, old, busy, involved, impatient. You fill in the blank. If you have ever found yourself without the language of faith, that you needed or wanted, know that you are in good company with one of the greatest prophets of Israel. If you have ever been in a place where you were at a loss for words, you did not know what to say until after you'd left the meeting, left the conversation, and you wonder, why didn't I think of that? This is what God said to Jeremiah. I will put the words in your mouth. The words are there. Because, and this is what James talks about, 
the words are already within us because God has given them to us. We simply need only to find them and know how best to use them. I'd like to ask you to join with me at the close of the, the sermon this morning to participate in an act of using words of power. And that includes two words that are heart and center of our life as God's people. Confession and forgiveness. In many congregations, it's a traditional practice prior to the celebration of Holy Communion to participate in both confession and forgiveness. And I just happen to have some slides available where we can do that. The slides are going to come up. And I'll read the parts that are labeled. See that little P up there in the corner? I'll read the P parts, Pastor. And there's two of them. And then you get to join with me in reading the C, congregation parts. So hear these words. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hidden, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins. We confess that we are in bondage to sin and cannot free ourselves. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Forgive us, renew us, and lead us, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. And now hear this declaration. In the mercy of Almighty God, Jesus Christ was given to die for you. And for his sake, God forgives you all of your sins. To those who believe in Jesus Christ, he gives the power to become the children of God. Be at peace. Your sins are forgiven. Amen. Aren't those powerful words? And we own them. We own them. A great gift of God. Join me in prayer. Dear Lord, it's not only the meditation of our hearts, it's the words of our lips that reflect, that honor, that sustain our relationship to you. Hear our confession. Hear our words as we hear your words of forgiveness, of redemption, and grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.